uh, this morning, we are returning in earnest to the letter of 1 Peter. So let me invite you uh, to open up with me this morning once again to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to read in just a few moments two verses from 1 Peter 2. If you were with us uh, last week, you know that I, I went back into uh, 1 Peter for a very specific purpose last week to look at the call that we had there in chapter 3 to do that which was good and not to fear anything that is frightening. But now we're picking up where we left off back in November. So in your own Bibles or in the Pew Bibles, the blue ones, page 1015 or in the bulletins, you can follow along with me. So since it's been now uh, more than a month since we were in this section of Scripture, let me bring us up to speed on where we were with the first chapter and the first ten verses of uh, 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, spent the first part of this letter encouraging us building us up in the faith, strengthening us in the faith, fortifying the people of God in what Christ has done for the church and how Christ has formed the church all around the world. There were, to be sure, a few commands, imperatives that were sprinkled into that first section, but primarily, all the way up to this point, it is given to us for our strengthening. Peter is saying to us, listen, life in this world is not easy, but in Christ, we are, in fact, elect exiles. And through Christ, we have been born again into a living hope. We've been born again into a new family, and as a result of that new family line that we have, we have been given in Christ and promised an inheritance that is to come to us. We've been given in the present joy in the midst of trials that take place in this life. We have been given salvation. We are the recipients of salvation, and that is a salvation which we now possess and yet we recognize that we don't yet have it in fullness, as Peter has taught us, and so we wait for it as well. He told us that we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, and as those have been ransomed, we haven't merely been ransomed individually, but in Christ, we've brought, been brought into a new family, a community of faith, a community of hope, and love and of holiness. We've been given promises that are found in the Word of God. And in Jesus himself, who is the precious living stone, the cornerstone set by God, we too are gathered together into a spiritual house. And as such, as those who are in Christ, those who are founded upon Christ, we are honored honored by God because Christ himself was honoring to God our Father. And so as we get now closer to our passage, we are a chosen race, we are a royal priesthood, we are a people for God's own possession, we are a holy nation. Once we were not a people, once we were just people from all over various neighborhoods, all varieties of ethnicities, now we are the people of God. 
once you and I were people who had not received mercy, but now we are in fact the people of God, the recipients of the mercy of God. We are people, and this is where it kind of started and where it climaxes here in, in this first section. We are people who by the grace of God and by the mercy of God know about the glory of God. We know about the excellencies of God himself. And as such, we are a people who then speak of those excellencies of God. If I had to have uh, one phrase from 1 Peter to describe it, I would say in all of that, we are therefore those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's who we are as a people. The people who have experienced, the people who have taken it in and can therefore testify to the goodness of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, I may have said this in the last sermon before I stopped, and I, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, I couldn't remember whether I said this or not, but as I preached through that, I personally found it to be really encouraging. It really lifted my own heart as I was preaching through that over uh, the months in the fall, and I hope that that is true for you. I mean, I found it to be the case where each time I got ready to preach, I thought, well, it can't get any better than this, and then there would be another section that came right after that that was, in fact, more encouraging than the one that I had just preached on, and so it just kept building, and I, I found it to be uh, just really strengthening for my own soul, but here's the deal. The letter actually didn't end in verse 10 of chapter 2. It didn't stop right there. We didn't get all the way up to that point and go, okay, that's, uh, that's it. Peter hasn't built up the church for the sake of building up the church. He's, he's not fortifying us simply for the sake of us being fortified. Rather, what he is doing is he's building us up unto the mission that belongs to the people of God who live in this world. And therefore, we have the title of today's sermon, Once More Unto the Breach, Dear Friends, because that's what Peter is calling us to, once more into the battle that God has set before us. Hear the word of God, just two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's short. I'm going to read it again. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Great God in heaven, you who have saved us, you who have been merciful to us, now, Lord, we pray that you would take this word that you have authored by the Holy Spirit through your servant Peter and apply it to us right now. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would fall afresh upon us and that the word would penetrate into our hearts, that you would help us to hear it well as your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The Bible is not a survival guide. First Peter is not a survival guide. Peter didn't remind all of us of what I just reviewed for us simply to provide us with the items that we would need to put into our survival kits as exiles in the wilderness of a barren world. Peter's message to the church then and Peter's message to us and the scripture's message to us now isn't merely to say, listen, the world is a really awful place where you're undergoing many trials and tough times, but here are some things that Christ has given to you to help you to hold on just a little while longer because he's coming back soon. That's not, that's not what the purpose of this letter is. The Bible is not a survival guide, and you are not merely a survivor. You're not just a survivor in this world. The Bible is a missions manual, and you are a missionary. The Bible is basic training, and you are a warrior. Now, I'm using some hyperbole here in the way that I have begun this sermon. I know full well in my own life, and I know this is true for you, that there are days that we're just trying to survive. There are weeks that we're just trying to survive. There are seasons of life that we are just trying to get through. I get it. I know that. I'm aware of that. But the hyperbole, I think the hyperbole is helpful because it helps us to ask some fundamental questions about our identity, about how we view ourselves. How do we think of ourselves? Our purpose, our mission, our reason for being. Is it to survive and endure? Or are we a vital chosen part of the mission of God in the world? Which is it? Are you just surviving, just hanging on by the skin of your teeth so that when Jesus returns, you'll get into heaven? Or has God put you here intentionally, specifically, as a vital part of his mission for the world? From the very beginning of this series, I think probably in the first several sermons that I preached from this series, I warned you that Peter was going to get very direct and very personal in ways that we're going to find uncomfortable. And we've come to that point right now. With, with these two verses that are before us today, we enter into the point of this letter where Peter is really going to be poking us about life in the world. These two verses are that transition point. Our Lord commissioned the apostles, and Peter was there, and Peter was there when the risen Lord Jesus Christ said to him and to the other ten who were with him, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Peter heard that commission from the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostolic commission that came to him. And now, Peter that same commissioned apostle turns to the apostolic church and says, here's your commissioning. 
This is your commissioning service. I got it from the Lord directly. I, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, am now conveying it to you, the church, the people of God, living in the midst of this world. And that's what I want to do. That's how I want to understand. That's how I want to work through these verses here before us today. Beloved. That's where it starts. Beloved. Not all commission services probably start off with the word beloved to do this one here. And a marital service, of course. It's an old, archaic term, beloved. But it gets the point across clearly that, that Peter is talking to this community of love. It starts with the love of God the Father. And in the love of God the Father, God the Father sent his Son and his son loved the apostles. He loved the disciples. Having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. He even loved Peter. He even loved Peter, who was a sinful man who had denied his Savior, and he created and gave birth to love in the heart of Peter as well. Peter, Peter, do you love me? Because, brother, if you love me, I've got a commission for you. I've got a commission for you, Peter, but it's born out of love. It's born out of the love that I have shown you and the love that you have for me, beloved. And so Peter, the one who had received that, the one who had heard that, the one who had experienced it from Jesus, now conveys it into the new covenant community who is to be a community of love. He's already told them that, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 22, it reads this way, having purified your souls by obe your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Beloved. Beloved, he says, I urge you. I urge you. Peter's saying, listen, with all that I have in my being, what are synonyms for urge? I beseech you. I beg you. I entreat you. I exhort you. I appeal to you. I plead with you. This, this is a word that's often used by Paul. It's used by Paul in a couple of verses that we're very familiar with. So, for example, in uh, Romans 12, verse 1, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Or in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I exhort you, I appeal to you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Peter says, beloved, I urge you. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what, how I'm urging you. I'm urging you as sojourners and exiles. And when he says that, he takes us right back to a theme that we may have forgotten because it's been a while for us. But if we were reading it, we would remember that that's the way the letter started. Right? The letter started like this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he's already talked about it a couple of times in the first chapter. As sojourners and exiles. And when we think about those words, those words apply not only them at that to them at that particular moment, 
But when Peter uses those terms, he, of course, is immediately linking this present people living in Turkey to all of the history of God's people, in particular, of course, to Israel, who is in the wilderness, but two figures in particular, to Abraham and to David, both of whom identify themselves with exactly those terms, both of whom say that about themselves, that I'm a soldier, sojourner and an exile on the earth. And the reality is that it connects not only to Israel, not only to David, not only to Abraham, but it connects all the way back beyond that as well. Because any follower of Jesus Christ, anyone who is seeking after the Lord, since Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, is in fact a sojourner and an exile in this world. That's, that's the image. There's, there's, there's no choice about it. You are, in fact, a sojourner and an exile in this world. And so Peter is saying to them, when he says to them, as sojourners and exiles, he's connecting them. Boom. He takes the line all the way back to the very beginning. But here's the thing. And this is, this is what Peter is doing here. It's not simply a forced reality. Here's what I mean. You could be exiles because you had no choice about being an exile, right? So when Israel is carried off into captivity in Babylon, they don't choose to be exiles. They are exiled, right? As a matter of fact, they're, they're carried off by force into Babylon. Therefore, anybody who gets carried off by force is an exile. It's not just because you're forced that you are an exile. It's also not just because it's a de facto reality that we are exiles. In other words, we, as the new covenant people of God, don't have a land, a country that is named, whatever, Christian country, uh, where we all live in that particular place like they did in the Old Testament. So we're not just de facto exiles because of the fact that we don't have a particular homeland. And then one more thing, it's not just that we're forced, it's not just that we're de facto exiles, and it's not just a negative. It's not just a Bummer, I just don't fit into the world. And so metaphorically speaking, I guess I'm an outsider. I, I, I just don't fit with this world. No, no, no. That, Peter's point, those things may be true, but that's not what Peter is saying here. Instead, Peter is emphasizing that having this status and embracing that reality of being a sojourner and being an exile is actually strategic. It's strategic, and in fact, it is essential. It is essential that you can take that identity upon yourself and own it and wear it for the mission that has been given to us. If you, if we consider ourselves right now to be home, that we are at home, that this is our home, that this is our homeland, then you have no place to go. You've arrived at your destination. If you think this is home, you have arrived at your destination. But if you are a sojourner, if you are an exile, then you ask your que yourself questions like, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing here? How do I get to where I want to go? What do I need to be doing? You see, people who are literally refugees know that they are not home. Missionaries who are serving overseas, the Kirklands, 
and others, they know they're not home. They know they're not home. And so when they wake up in the morning and they look outside, they go, what am I doing here? I've got a purpose for being here. I'm not home. This isn't my home. Those who uh, serve overseas as diplomats or in the foreign service know they are not home. Deployed soldiers know they are not home. Frankly, it's harder for those of us who are living in the state in which we were born, the town in which we were born, or even the country in which we were born. It's harder for us to understand and appreciate this, but faithful service to the Lord requires exilic self-identity. Faithful service to the Lord requires exilic self-identity. You are not home. And so what Peter is saying is, I've got a mission for you, but in order for you to understand this mission, you have to wear this. You have to, you have to not just say, ah, oh, I, I, I wish I was home. It, it, you know, I'm a stranger. I feel uncomfortable in this place. Peter says, no, 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 no. This is part of the design. It's part of the strategy. You actually don't want to be connected to that old world. You don't want to be at home in this world. You're not at home in this world. Because here's the reality, right? If we took uh, earlier parts of this letter, here's the reality. The reality is we are planted, or we were planted before we were saved by the Lord, in this world. We were part of this present world order. We did the things that other people do. Peter describes it as a futile way of life, and we were anchored into it. We were rooted into it when God the Father said, I want that one out of that world. And the Spirit of God said, very good, I'll take my spiritual shovel, and the Spirit of God comes around, and he takes his spiritual shovel, and he works his way around the roots of our lives. He uproots us, and he roots us into Christ. And he roots us into the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, our feet still stand on this ground. We're still here. We're rooted now in Christ. But we are living here. As exiles, as sojourners here in this world. And as we embrace that, when you embrace that, then the mission and the missionary purpose of your life begins to take shape. Now, let's look back at the text. The mission, as described here by Peter, exists on two fronts. These two fronts can be distinguished, and you can talk about the, the, the various fronts of this battle that we're in, but they cannot be separated. They can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. The first front is internal, and the second front is external that Peter gives us here in this text. So he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, first the internal, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the internal. Second, the external. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is to say, out in the world, your, your conduct out in the world, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Internal, external, personal, societal, invisible, what goes on in your heart and in your life, and that which is visible to the world. Now, so that we know, in the sections that are following ours today, Peter is going to be particularly concerned about the front, or the mission, if you will, that involves our exposure to the world. 
okay, that involves our interactions with the world that is around us, the Gentile world that is around us. How do you, how do you have your mission out in the midst of that world? But what he recognizes is that the war out there in the world has actually its roots inside of us, in here. What we are going to do out in the world before the Gentiles flows out of who we are, who we are internally and how we're doing on that front. And thus you've got this first command, this first front, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. When you became a Christian, you were born again. You were born again into a living hope and you were transferred. You were transferred, you were taken out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the beloved kingdom of the sun, the kingdom of light. And you are being more and more conformed into the son who is the king of that kingdom, but it's not completed yet. It has started, but it's not finished. And so what Peter recognizes in himself and what he recognizes for believers as well is that lurking within us, there are still what he calls here passions of the flesh. Those still exist within us. You can call them evil desires, if you will. Uh, in Galatians 5, Paul speaks about these as the, the works of the flesh. And let me, just, let me just clarify something here. That Peter's here not trying to set up a dichotomy between the soul and the body in any way. He, because a lot of the things that he's referring to are, are actually not visible things. These are, these are problems of the heart. These are problems of desire that then have a tendency to manifest themselves in the things that we do in the flesh with our bodies. So Paul's catalog of this includes from Galatians 5, here's a smattering, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Those are the kinds of things that are these evil passions that still exist or these passions of the flesh that still exist. Peter has his own uh, catalog of them in the first verse of this chapter. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's what he's talking about right here. Those things that are still lurking within us, they still exist, and those things inside of us are battling for our very soul. Those things are haters of life. They are destroyers of life, but they are inside of us. And in other words, Christians don't need to go outside of the church to find the culture war to find the desires of the flesh. You don't have to go outside the church, you just have to go inside your heart. And there you will find them, lurking. And Peter is saying, you've got to abstain from those things. Because they, whether you'd like them to admit it or not, they are waging war against your life. They want you. They want you dead. They want to kill your faith. They want to sap your energy. They want to get rid of your hope. They want to crush you. They want to strangle out any of the life that has been implanted by the Spirit of God inside of you. They are there to choke it out. And Peter says, you've got to abstain from that. 
And that's really where the title of this sermon applies. The title of the sermon doesn't just apply somewhere outside of the church, but right here. Once more, unto the breach. Unto the breach, dear friends. This is where we go. If in our lives, if in our lives right now as believers, we've come to be at peace with the passions of the flesh or the evil desires that continue to lurk inside of us, then then friends, what we've got to hear is Peter saying here, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to be at war with those things. Your resources are there. Your resources are the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Your resources are Christ for killing those things and for putting them to death. You don't need to just live with them and make peace with them being there. Don't do that. Keep going after them because they won't stop going after you. At least they won't stop going after you in this world. So if we've resigned some way, if we've stepped back in some way from that battle, that's where the front has to start. That's the very first thing that Peter says by way of his commission. You have to abstain from them. But having said that, having said that, we want to be clear that fighting only against evil desires would be dreadful in and of itself. We're instead fighting for that which is life indeed. If our Christian life is characterized by uh, what I do as a Christian is I abstain from evil desires. Ooh, that's a tough life right there. If, if that's what you're doing, that all that I am as a Christian, I identify as, well, I can't do this, I can't do this, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that, and I end up doing that anyway. And I come to church and I confess that I did that. That's a, that's a hard way to go about it. That's, but abstaining from evil desires here for Peter is not the end. It's not the end. Rather, it fosters, it allows, it gives room for a life, and this is then where we move to verse 12 and to the second front, if you will. It leaves room for a life of honorable conduct to be lived before the world for the glory of God. That's what Peter wants. Honorable conduct lived before the world for the glory of God. Now, excuse me for just a moment. In the second sermon of this series, I went through these three verses. I will do this very quickly, but I want us to see the significance of saying the glory of God, because I don't want that just to be a thing that we say, right? We, we confess it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But that's what Peter said. Verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that he's about to say, blessed be God. Blessing and honor and power and glory be unto him. Here, when he starts this section, he again speaks of the glory of God. When he finishes this section, chapter 4, verse 11, we read, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And when we get to the end of the letter, in verse 11 of chapter 5, it says, To him be the dominion forever and ever. The ultimate end, the ultimate end of the mission that Peter is saying, this is what the target is, this is where the front is, this is the purpose of the battle, is not just to abstain but to glorify and to enjoy that glory of God. That's the ultimate end, but there's a proximate end. There's something that is nearer, or something by which you can get hold of that ultimate end. The proximate mission is the doing of good deeds today. 
because not only are they God-glorifying in themselves, as we saw in the confessions that we did earlier, but they serve as a witness to the non-Christian world and as counter-evidence, as a rebuttal to the claim that Christians are doers of evil, that Christians are evildoers, that Christians are people who just restrict you from doing what you want to do, who are haters. Doing good deeds puts a stop to that. Or at least to some of it. At least to some of it. Maybe not all of it, but at least to some of it. The recipients of this letter lived in a world in which the values of their faith came into conflict with the values and the conduct of the world. And surprise, surprise, that makes the world very unhappy and it makes the world very uncomfortable. And so, rather than blaming yourself, which the world is loath to do, they blame Christians. They blame Christians for being narrow-minded, for being foolish, for being killjoys. That's the world in which Peter's audience lived. Does it sound familiar? Well, of course it sounds familiar. It sounds exactly like what all of you experience when you turn on the TV, when you go to work, when you live in your communities, when you go play on some sports team, when you talk to your friends at school. It sounds exactly like the world in which we live. But here's the reality, and Peter is banking on this reality. The fact that the world turns things upside down and inside out, calling evil good and good evil, doesn't mean that they do that all the time. They do it sometimes, but it doesn't mean they do it all the time. The people of the world who are not believers in Jesus Christ are still image bearers. They still, they still have a conscience, and sometimes more, sometimes less, there is evidence of the work of the law. If not the law itself written on the, their hearts, at least the work of the law is written on their hearts. And so here's the presupposition that Peter's working with. When you do good, you stop up those accusations. You stop up the accusations, or at least you stop some of them, and what happens is this person who would love to hate you, they would love to think evil of you, but they watch you doing good, and they're forced to stop to look at you and to think. And perhaps, by the grace of God, to ask a question. Maybe it sounds like this. What is the reason for the hope that is inside of you? Why are you doing this? They'd like to characterize us in a certain way. But you might have an opportunity to declare and to proclaim. And in that, God will be glorified. God will be glorified on the very last day. On the day of visitation, on the day of the return of Christ, he will be glorified. But here's what I would also say is much in Peter's mind as well. A day of visitation might also be a day of salvation, and it might come earlier than the last day. And that's what Peter's talking about. The principle is illustrated for us in chapter 3, verses. actually it's illustrated for us in, in a number of places, but very clearly this principle is in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. As I said last week, I recognize how difficult this passage is, but listen to what it says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, Okay, these are, these are people who don't want anything to do with the Word of God. Even if they do not obey the Word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives. 
Peter's talking about honorable conduct in our commissioning statement right here. He's applying it in this particular situation in chapter 3. By the honorable conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We don't have a voice. We don't have much of a voice into how things are taking place. But what Peter says is you do have good deeds. You do have them. And they may be the very platform that you need to win someone to Christ by the conduct. So, so with respect to the wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, that's exactly the application of what he said up here in our passage, that they may see your good deeds. It's unsurprisingly that Peter himself would have heard this and said it because it's what Jesus said, right? It's on the front of your bulletin. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And what Peter's saying when he's writing his letters, he's saying, that'll preach. <laughs> I'll preach that right there. That's Peter's source text for the sermon that he's preaching, that he's writing right here. James says it this way, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Show it. Do that which is good that the world may have to take notice of it. Now, here we go. I know this has been a long sermon. I'm going I'm to bring it into a close right now. We'll unpack this in weeks ahead as we have opportunity, great opportunity to do it. To close, let's just remember this. This is Peter's commissioning for saints who are living in the world. That's the value of the passage that we've got here, of the letter that we have before us. God has not called us merely to survive in this world. He has called us to his mission in this world. That's what we're called to. And as exiles and as sojourners, here's then the battle plan. Fight the good fight internally against the evil desires so that by conduct that is honorable as you do good deeds, the world that would curse you is, first to, is forced to turn around and look at you and might find you to be a blessing. Perhaps it will be unto their salvation, and most definitely it will be unto God's glory. Peter says, I urge you to that mission. I urge you to that, not just a sitting back, not just the surviving, to this mission that is God's mission in this world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to embrace that calling, to embrace that mission as well, to walk in your ways. Lord, you know that sometimes we're just trying to get by, but we pray that you would help us to hear, to battle internally for that which is good and true and right and holy in our own lives, and to then do good in the world that it might serve to your glory by bringing people to know you and to be able to see your goodness and for us to then have opportunity to express that very goodness. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's sing in response.